0: When he says he's a good guy, it's probably a lie, it's Happily Ever Slasher. The cabin in the woods has a four-star rating, but the murder scene will be devastating. he's coming on too strong, there might be something wrong. It's Happily Ever Slasher,
1: the podcast. Hey guys, I'm Amanda. And I'm Tara, and this is Happily Ever Slasher, the podcast about two movies with one thing in
2: common. Every week we're watching one horror movie and one romantic comedy to find out just how much these two genres actually have in common.:
1: Oh, and um, just for the record, this is our first week that we are recording remotely. so please bear with us if the audio sounds different or if there are any bumps or issues. We're, we're doing our best to figure it out. We're both home. yeah, so having so many conversations with like mirrors and cats) <laughs>
2: My cats are actually really good conversationalists. <laughs> I don't know if you knew that about
1: them. I Sherlock's got quite the banter. <laughs> yeah, he's very witty. <laughs> Rory, Rory could use some work,
2: but we'll work on it. Just shy. So, yeah, so we were working from home, we're recording from home, we're... Spending every moment at home.
1: Long movies this week, like five hours of movie watching.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so this is good that this is the week we picked two movies that are both over two hours long.
1: So they have that in common. Yeah. (laughs) Um, On the topic of movies, what are we talking about
2: this week? We are talking about the 1958 Hitchcock classic, Vertigo. And the 2001 not-so-classic-but-amazing rom-com Heartbreakers.
1: And the theme of this week is tricking someone to fall in love with you and then just, like, gaslighting the crap out of them. Wait,
2: so they're supposed to just, like, like me for me, then? (laughs) (laughs) That might be a problem, but okay. It's an issue I struggle with, too. (laughs) Have you seen these movies before?
1: I think this is the first week where I can say I have seen both of these movies before, and I actually really like both of them. Heartbreakers was, like, one of my favorite movies as a kid. I used to watch it. I don't know how I could sit through it because it's two hours and, like, three minutes, but I watched it, like, multiple times in a row. I was obsessed with it. I wanted to be Jennifer Love Hewitt. (laughs) It's so funny you say that because I
2: did too. And I was rewatching it, and I'm like, oh my god, Amanda, (laughs)
1: like you wanted to be. She's a psycho in this movie. She's out of control.
2: I like the scene that I remember physically, like being like, I really want to like be just like her. Was the scene where she's eating a steak, smoking a cigarette, and like doing card tricks at the dinner table. I remember as a teenager, I was like. She's so cool. And now I'm like, ah.
1: I always love the one where, like, she kicks in the door to the bar and just, like, power walks in. Yes. Love and then it. Vertigo I had watched when I was in college. I'm like, okay, here's the thing about Vertigo. I really like it. I think it's a good movie. I Also, I'm pretty sure I've never watched it without falling asleep. I just find it, like... There are lots of spirals, the score is very calming, colors are nice. Like it just By like an hour and 15 minutes in, I'm just out.
2: I feel like Hitchcock is rolling over in his grave right now. <laughs> it so it is oddly soothing, though, I agree. <laughs> I had, like you said, I'd seen both of them before, too. Heartbreakers is the one i had seen most recently, and I saw that one... For, for the first time I saw it, I was in high school. And like we were just talking about, I like thought Jennifer Love Hewitt it was like the coolest person alive. And Vertigo I'd seen years ago, but didn't have any like strong recollection, like memories of it. I knew the plot, but I wasn't like, I don't have any like visceral memories from it. But I do like it as a movie, but I'm not like, I feel like I'm not, it's not my favorite, but I see why... It is as kind of respected as it is because it did a lot of cool things for like the first time and kind of like was such so groundbreaking in the genre that I can definitely see how it impacted film after it.
1: I mean, the camera work in this is just like revolutionary.
2: Yeah. And that's where that was really cool to kind of like see and to see how it affects other movies that came after.
1: Yeah. So let's get into it. And we should probably mention we'll be summarizing these two movies in some detail. So there will be serious spoilers. So if you want to watch them first, this is your final warning.
2: Dun, dun, dun.
1: <laughs> Fair,
2: fair, fair. So yeah, let's get into it. So the first movie we're going to start with, I think, is Heartbreakers. I'd have to kiss that.
0: <laughs> We'd better work fast. The plan is ready. Just call me Olga. The con is set, oh, darling. but for this team... Hey, Mom! ...not even practice makes perfect. Gross. Do you have any idea how much therapy you people need? Oh. <laughs> Starring Sigourney Weaver, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Ray Liotta, Jason Lee and Gene Hackman. He doesn't look so bad. <laughs> yeah, his liver spots are positively glowing.
1: So, Heartbreakers is a 2001 romantic comedy directed by David Merkin of Rami Michelle's High School Reunion fame. It got a 53% on Rotten Tomatoes, which, I mean, like, is probably accurate, but I personally think it should be, like, at least in the 60s. <laughs> not quite fresh, but not not rotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's written by Robert Dunn. I'm going to butcher these names, but Paul Gwai and Stephen Mazer. And Guaya Mazur had previously written Little Rascals and Liar Liar, which I feel, like, makes a lot of sense, given the tone of the movie. Oh, my um, God, I love Little Rascals. They wrote Little Rascals. Yeah. There, there's one more guy that helped write Heartbreakers, but the <laughs> other duo had some, like, real hits. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if
2: if you get the guys that wrote Little Rascals, you're probably all set. I don't know. I love that movie. <laughs> I also haven't seen it since I was a child, so let me preface it with that. I actually, I
1: don't think I've ever seen Little Rascals. I've seen Liar Liar. We won't be watching it for this podcast. And it's kind of a rom-com if you think about it,
2: in a weird little kid
1: way, like Alfalfa and uh, Darla. I'm sure we'll get to a point where it's appropriate, eventually. (laughs) Anywho, we open on a wedding, and I should note that, like, (laughs) okay, so I don't know about you, but... I didn't remember this from when I was a kid, but the music started and I had a moment of like, oh, my, did I buy the wrong movie? Because it's straight up like witches of Eastwick, Adam's family type, Mm -hmm. like spooky vibes. And then like 10 seconds in, it's like music by Danny Elfman. I'm like, oh, my God, of course it fucking is. It sounds like Beetlejuice. (laughs) amazing. Um, So we open our wedding and it's a very traditional wedding. Angie played by Sigourney Weaver, is marrying Dean, played by Ray Liotta. And it's become pretty clear at the wedding that Angie has been making Dean wait until they get married for sex. So he, like, really wants to leave the ceremony and get back to their hotel room. But she's, like, taking her time with the champagne, dancing with every single man at the party. They're the last to leave. He's, like, blueballing out. She whips off her dress. She's got this, like, blue lace thing underneath of the corset. And right when he manages to cut the jumpsuit off her so they might be able to have sex, she falls asleep. So what I did appreciate about this scene was, like, he's been waiting months to have sex with her. And they paint him like he's supposed to be kind of like a scummy character and a small time crook. But he, like, immediately knows he can't have sex with her while she's sleeping. Like, he doesn't even, like, try, just, like, sticks his dick in an ice bucket. And I have to say, like, after all the movies we've watched, I was like, holy shit, this is the most respectful man in a movie we've seen yet.
2: Wow, the bar is so low. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I actually, I made a note of that scene, too, because, like, I don't know what it was about the 90s and the early 2000s, but the blue balls jokes like I just I can't with the blue balls jokes (laughs) like like the fact that that was like a huge thing that people played for laughs is like oh man I have blue balls like it hurts
1: so bad it's like you're a fucking grown man get over it (laughs) you'll be fine (laughs) oh I'm sorry do your blue balls hurt have you tried childbirth (laughs) yeah or baby. anyways they wake up the next morning and they still can't have sex because Angie's hungover and she gets super sick. So Dean goes off to work. At work, we meet his secretary, Wendy, played by Jennifer Love Hewitt. And okay, we're introduced to her with an ass shot. Is the first shot we get of Jennifer Love Hewitt. And sidebar. So, okay. I went to see Emma and the, the main male character is has a nude scene. Up front in the first five minutes where you just like see his ass and that's how you're introduced to it. And I was so jarred by it. But we're introduced to female characters that way all the time. And then I looked up like all these movies where you're introduced with female characters by seeing their ass first. And it's like pretty woman, <laughs> like all these movies. But yeah, I wrote a whole essay about it. I'll, I'll make Amanda put it on the website <laughs> with my <Yeah. laughs> Valentine Manifesto. So Dean's all horned up. Wendy's half-dressed, and they start making out, and just then Angie arrives, so Wendy jumps under the table. Dean tells Angie that he has to finish up work. He manages to get her to leave, but Wendy's hair has gotten stuck in Dean's zipper, so as he's trying to get it out, (laughs) And she comes back, she forgot something, and she opens the door on um, what looks like Wendy giving Dean a blowjob. That's when you need, like, the 16 candles, just, like, cut the hair off and get her off the zipper strategy. I don't know. Yeah, Where <laughs> were her from? I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely had scissors on
2: his desk. So maybe Dean is actually a respectful character, because that would have been not a nice thing to do. But if you're a scumbag, that would have been a quick way out of the situation. So
1: maybe he's just a gentleman. I mean, he does still make out with this girl the day after his wedding because he's got some blue balls. The best of the men we've seen yet, but hopefully not the best of the men ever.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, they do they do play it off like, well, he couldn't help it, which is another thing right next to blue balls that I hate. Like that trope of like, well, like he's a man. What's he supposed to do? Not be a asshole? I don't
1: know. Have morals deal with his feelings, go to therapy, work his feelings out, have a good cry, find some coping skills. Anyways, Angie asks for a divorce, and she gets all the money, plus a Mercedes, and it's revealed to us as she leaves that her name is not Angie, it's Max, and Wendy is actually her daughter, Paige. And they've been working together to calm this dude and get all of his money. What? I didn't see that coming. (laughs) (laughs) And Paige has a great moment where she, like, takes her her wig off and her hair goes flying in the wind in slow motion. And um, I wanted to be her. Anyways, Paige really wants to go solo. But uh, when they go to deposit the money in the bank, they're confronted by an IRS agent. And I realized this is Mrs. Robinson from The Graduate plays the IRS agent. Oh, my God. I
2: forgot to mention, and I have to, Carrie Fisher plays the divorce attorney, which was amazing. So this movie's full of little, like, nuggets. I I noticed
1: that, too. And she, like, she never comes back. I wanted more Carrie Fisher. I mean, I always wanted
2: more Carrie Fisher, but yeah,
1: she was great. I love her play in The Divorce
2: Attorney, too. She was so badass.
1: There are a lot of, like, very famous actors playing small secondary characters in this movie. They The IRS calls them out on tax fraud and says that they've taken all their money out of their bank account except for, like, $3,000 <laughs> and... <laughs> Okay, so this confused me too because I was also like, I'm pretty sure that's not how the IRS works.
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure Max was just banking on the fact that Paige wasn't gonna like <laughs> look into it that closely.
1: <laughs> that she pulled her daughter out of high school to, to help con men with her. She yeah. never really got to the economics class that would have I helped mean- her.
2: I don't want to get this deep this early in the episode, but, like, I feel like the biggest con of the movie is Max conning Paige into, like, a life of crime from a very young age.
1: I definitely want, like, a Heartbreakers prequel where we, like, see their first con together after.
2: I feel like it would be super sad because, like, Paige is super young in this movie. She's, like, not, she's maybe in her early 20s. So I feel like,
1: when did this start? Like, how young did this woman get her going on this stuff? Anyway, so Paige agrees to do one last con to help pay off the IRS before she goes off on her own, and they decide they are going big. Not New York, not Seattle, Palm Beach. (laughs) Of course, even though they have no money, they manage to get a speedboat to go out on the water behind all of the millionaires' houses to scope for a right one. They narrow in on a millionaire, William B. Tensley, played by Gene Hackman. He is amazing in this movie. I love him in this movie so much. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, this is before Royal Tenenbaums, right? I think so, but I think it's very
2: close. Because I think Royal Tenenbaums is also the same. It's within a year or two. Like, I feel like the Royal Tenenbaums is really close to the early 2000s. I think
1: you're right. The makeup they put on Gene Hackman in this movie to make him look old is... Fantastic. So he's he's made money off uh, the tobacco industry, and smokes nonstop, and is also hacking up a lung nonstop, which means he's a great choice to con because he can literally drop dead any second and leave you all of his money. <laughs> Paige did want to do someone like kind of cute. She had her her eye on a younger doctor millionaire but he's playing croquet with his mom. And this was like the truest thing Sigourney Weaver says in the whole movie, where she's like, no, no mama's boy. Like, the mom will <laughs> away. So Max comes up with this con for Tensley where she poses as a Russian aristocrat named
0: Olga Ivanova,
1: and has a very over-the-top accent and amazing red wig. So she, she goes to an art auction that she knows Tensley will be at, and her plan is that she's just gonna like, one-up him constantly until he notices her. But her plan kind of fails because he starts coughing before he can place his final bid and she ends up actually buying this statue.
2: <laughs> so another, like, like, a cool fun fact that I notice in watching this is did you notice all, like, the 69s everywhere? There is... 69's on, like, I, I don't know if this comes, like, shortly after this or maybe a little later, where Jennifer Love Hewitt is, like, getting the ballet keys. I think it's right around this that's at the auction. And she takes the key off the hook, and it's, like, the 69 slot on the key rack. And then at the auction, Sigourney Weaver has 169 as her paddle.
1: Oh, my God.
2: Yeah, it's so weird. Like, it's just, like, little Easter eggs. Like, they don't, like, call any attention to it, obviously.
1: It's just really funny. That's amazing. So while she's at the, what what is this, an auction? <laughs> Paige decides she's going to do her own side con with the doctor. And she goes to a bar that she thinks he's going to be at. And mistakes Jason Lee, who's the bartender for the doctor. They have like a super embarrassing exchange where Jason Lee, whose character's name is Jack, asks her if he can get her a drink. And she like tells him this long thing of like, you don't even know anything about me. Why would you buy me a drink? And he's like, "Cause I'm the bartender." Which
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, it was really good. like, it's this poor guy. You do really feel for like Jason Lee is the perfect actor for this role because he's such like just like a everyman, even keeled. He's just like, oh. I did read on Internet Movie Database that they originally wanted Norman Reedus from The Walking Dead when he was obviously younger, when this movie came out, to play Jack. And I feel like that would have totally changed it, because I feel like he's too, like, cute. I wouldn't have bought it.
1: I couldn't have seen that at all, because, yeah, he's cute. But he's also, like, he's, like, a little, like, naughty cute. Yeah. He's not, he's not the not boy next walk. door. <laughs> like,
2: <laughs> Did you notice The Friends were Sarah Silverman? And I, it took me the entire movie to realize that was Zach Galifianakis so as a very small guy. Yes.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: i didn't even recognize them for the whole movie
1: there i feel like every bit part is someone who's now extremely famous when but, did you okay. realize it was zach galifianakis did you realize the first scene or did it take you a little while i realized the first scene but i think only because i i think i knew that okay like i, I, think don't I, I read that somewhere i recognize sarah silverman but
2: him i just like it took me a really long time
1: And their role is basically just to, like, support anything Jack does. (laughs) They're, like, not really great friends. They're kind of just enablers.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and Sarah Silverman, like, acts like she, like, likes Paige, or Jane is the name she gives him eventually. She, like, acts like she, like, likes them together. And I'm like, if this is your best friend, you would totally see through this girl's whole thing.
1: It'd be, like, real talk. So what do you know about this girl? (laughs) (laughs) Um... Her name is Jane. (laughs) but So so the doctor does eventually come to the bar, and Paige decides that she's going to fake choke on an olive, so he'll have to save her, and then they can bond over that. But she starts real choking, and the doctor's mom shows up, so he's all distracted, and Jason Lee has to save her instead. And she's not thankful at all that this man has just saved her life. She's (laughs) so so mean, him. She just eggs the crap out of him the whole movie.
2: <laughs> it's, like, seriously unbelievable that he falls for her during this. Because she's a super hot and super cold. And then super hot and super cold. I'd be like, what the fuck
1: is your deal? And, like, he never, you never see a conversation between them where they're really getting to know each other. Or where we see, like, anything they might have in common. I don't understand what, what the pull is.
2: Which we can get more into later, but I feel like that is very similar to Scotty and Madeline in Vertigo, which we can talk about
1: in a little while. Paige gets a call from her mom that she's leaving the auction, and for the first time in the movie, she abruptly walks out on Jack with no explanation. And so the the plan with her mom is that she's supposed to put these spikes out in the road, and Tensley will drive over them first, he'll kind of crash his car, it will seem like he blew out a tire... Paige will pull the spikes back, and her mom, Olga, at this point, who's supposed to be following him, will kind of come to the rescue, and that's how they're going to fall in love. So she puts the spikes out on the road, and she sees a different car coming that's not Tensley's, and she tries to pull it back, but the rope snaps, so this other car ends up crashing. And, of course, it ends up being Jason Lee. She knows she has to get him out of the way, though, before Tensley and her mom get there so they can have their moment. So she pushes him down a hill yeah. and just starts making out with him. Good plan. Sigourney Weaver, or uh, Max, and Tensley also crash. And Max hits him over the head so she can take him to the hospital and begin a romance. This whole they- scene? so funny like I just
2: like laughed really hard as like the whole like just like dance of it like one car accident pushes him down another car accident bangs him over the head like it's just very
1: I've laughed a lot gender tropes aside the like actual beats are are very well constructed and well written and the way it moves it through itself and I do not that I want to keep bringing up fall asleep but I do think it says something it's only five minutes shorter than vertigo I've never fallen asleep during this movie, and I watched as kids, so I'm <laughs> just gonna put it out there. <laughs> Tensley and Olga are in love, but Tensley's maid is onto them. Long story short, Paige and Olga frame her so Paige can get the position as a housekeeper, and they can kind of have an inside woman a- on this con. The library. <laughs> Where, like, after she steals all this stuff, and he, then he sees,
0: like, the, the cigarettes
1: in the closet. She's like,
0: Cigarettes? Oh. I feel like vomiting. That's my favorite line of the movie.
1: <laughs> no, that's like the deal, right? So they framed her for stealing all of his wife's jewelry, and he's kind of like, eh. And then, you know, the cigarettes are the thing where he's like, put her in jail can you you get like slips of the person at 20 and he's like can you like rough her up a little bit which was too far that was oh my god I forgot about that line that's bad yeah that was real bad but my cigarettes I feel like vomiting it's my favorite I do have to say that the rough them up line for I thought this movie was gonna be a lot more like tonally off than it was given, like, the previous early 2000s movies we've watched. And I feel like the rougher-up line was one of the only things that caught me as, oof, that's not funny now. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I feel like this movie's comedy is very, like, very over the top. Tensley ends up proposing to Olga, like, a month later. And the statue that Olga had originally won in the auction that she couldn't pay for she had kind of, like, made flirty eyes with one of the servicemen carrying it out until he, like, messed up and accidentally broke the dick off of it. So she she could say she didn't have to buy it. But Tensley's bought it for her. He's got the dick back intact. And he sets it up in her room. And when they go to make out, he has a coughing attack, falls, hits his head on the dick, and dies with a dick in his mouth. And, of course, perfect timing. Dean never really got over Angie. Angie aka Max, aka Olga. (laughs) He has managed to follow them here using the address they licensed the Mercedes to, and he shows up right at this moment. But upon seeing Cage and Max together, he realizes that he was played and conned, and he demands his money back. At this point, I think they go to get him the money from the bank account, and it's not there. And they realize that Mrs. Robinson who played the IRS agent, has actually pulled a con on them and taken their money out of the bank account. Which, like, okay, I don't know about you, but so Sigourney Weaver is supposed to be this experienced con artist, and she gave another known con artist her bank account numbers? I'm sorry, she's smarter than that. I don't buy it. Another thing she does that's stupid is
2: keeps the Mercedes because if the Mercedes is now licensed to an address, the Dean can track. I mean, it's similar again, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but like in Vertigo, when Madeline puts on the necklace, that's like her towel. And it's like, why are these people saving these mementos from previous cons? You have to sell the shit and keep the money.
1: You don't save mementos. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Paige and Max tell Dean... That they don't have the money, but if he helps them cover up Tensley's death, they'll split their profits of their next con with him. So he does. This body falls off a balcony. They accidentally close, like, a car trunk on his legs and snap them. For a millionaire, like, I have to imagine the autopsy. They they fucked up this body bad. No one's going to be like, yeah, it was lung disease. Right. It's crazy. I mean, similar in Vertigo. I
2: mean, I guess that was the 50s, but, like... Medical work could tell if someone fell off a roof or if someone was like murdered. Yeah. Apparently there's a lot of holes in both of these plots. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. More more similarities. So somewhere along the way, Sarah Silverman in one of her quirky moments has slipped a page that Jason Lee is worth three million because people are trying to buy the property that is as on to develop it. So they decide that they're gonna con him into marrying her. Which is way too easy given like how batshit crazy she's been previously to <laughs> so this. How she manages to win him over and convince him they should just get married.
2: <laughs> it works.
1: <laughs> Dean and Max pose as her family and on the night of the wedding, Max seduces Jason Lee and Paige catches them in bed together. She really loves him, so she is legit devastated for this. And files for divorce. What happens in,
2: like, the scene where Max tries to seduce Jack is, like, fucked up in many, many ways. First of all, Jack lets it go on for way too long. Like, if your new wife's cousin comes to your hotel room on your wedding night, you kick her, and, like, clearly, you know, you can tell what she's after. Like, you kick her out immediately. Like, you don't say, like, let's have a drink. You say, like, you need to leave. And, like, things when he says, oh, part of me really wants you to stay or something like that. It's, like, you don't say that. Like, you do not leave this person on. Or even if you're trying to be nice, you don't do that. And, obviously, it's fucked up that Max (laughs) Rufi's him.
1: The best I can say for Jack is that, like, given what we see of him and Paige, he's, well, A maybe not that smart but also be just like has problems saying no and just gets pushed around and manipulated into things easily but you're totally right like I guess that's true in terms of
2: character continuity because like that is his character to like let people just fucking walk all over him so I guess that's a good point but like I don't know I just didn't like how he handled that situation I was like if that was my new husband I would be before the roofing like the other stuff and then the roofing i'm like your mom just roofied your husband
1: <laughs> he's a bit like that snl character pete davidson does chad so <laughs> he's like oh okay but you could have replaced all of jason lee's lines in this movie with oh, okay and the plot would have still worked <laughs> oh my god i want the super cut that is just every time jason lee's on screen it's just pete davidson is chad so Paige files for divorce and she gets all the money and as they're driving home Max admits that she had to roofie Jack to get him to into the situation in bed with her Paige freaks out she heads back to the bar which she's bought back from him I guess so quickly and throws a surprise party saying she bought the bar and wants to be with him again I'm sorry, that's not how I would want to hear that information. Yeah, like
2: in front of all his friends and coworkers, And like, oh, by the way, my name's not Jane. <laughs> like,
1: what? And she's crimped her hair now. So she's like a different person. Oh, it's like kind of like that like trope of like,
2: when they're like the kind of uptight girl, they have like straightened hair. And then when they're like the fun freewheeling girl, they like let their hair be like... It's not natural. It's like literally took longer than the straight look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's such a trope. I can't think of other movies off the top of my head, but I know I've seen that before. Legally
1: Blonde. Selma yeah. Blair has the straight bob. And Woods always has Claire- curls. Almost Famous, another Jason Lee movie. Oh, Jurassic World. Uh,
2: Wish Upon a Star, I think, when Katherine Heigl's character gets the other sisters in her body,
1: she's like, her hair is like, more relaxed. Yeah, and of course the movie that probably started this whole thing, Grease, where the same girl has <laughs> straight hair curly hair. Yeah, so true. <laughs> We're on to something. But pa- Paige has curly hair now, and she wants to be with Jack, and he's just kind of like, oh, okay, and has no questions, so <laughs> they get back together. I mean, does
2: he say, oh, okay, I feel like the movie ends in a very, like, you assume he does, but it's kind of just like, my name's Paige and then they show his face for a second and then it's like cut to the credits
1: oh I thought they like made out for a bit
2: there's like no like you don't get you assume because it's a rom-com that that's like but it's funny like because similar in vertigo like they embrace you like does he forgive her and then
1: she like dies. so like if she had lived would he have forgiven her I don't know Ooh, that's like a very different read I like the movie better with that but one couple that does end up together so Max and Dean discovered that they do have real feelings for each other and they want to work it out so we end with them conning the IRS agent <laughs> on them and and they're together forever and living dirty scoundrel lives but my favorite part is that Ray Liotta is now like like
2: the con man, like, yeah. he's just, like trying to be like suave and like, which is hilarious. And it's like a cool, it does show that their relationship is very equal-ish for them. They're both messed up people, but they yeah. have. Um, my favorite line is Dean to Max and he's like, well, if you're going to be my wife again, you need to be respectable. And like, this is a guy that like shot at fish from a boat with like a handgun.
1: That scene killed me when I was a kid. Also, I love so they they ha- they like rent a boat for the movie for them to shoot the scene on where she simply so that Jennifer Love Hewitt can introduce Sigourney Weaver and Ray Liotta to Jack as as her family. I'm like that must have cost them so much extra. I feel like Leonardo so had like a clause in his contract that
2: was like the boat clause. He was like, "I need to be on like a boat in Palm Beach at least once." And they're like, "Fuck, we don't have a
1: scene. What can we do?" All right, he has a boat. <laughs> We're discovering so many like secrets of Hollywood contracts in this podcast. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I have no legal
2: ability, but I think they have some secret spots in those contracts for weird,
1: fucked up shit. Yeah. So that's yeah. it. That's heartbreakers. I feel like when we
2: picked to put these movies together, we didn't, we thought it'd be great, but I think after watching them together in like, you know, one after the next, they're kind of suited for each other more than like I even thought originally, which I think is really
1: cool. The structure of both of them is exactly the same. Like just the setup is we see someone on their job in Heartbreakers, it's Paige doing a con and Vertigo. It's Jimmy Stewart being a cop. And then we see them trying to get out of that job and getting conned back into it. And that is just like the setup for both movies.
2: Yeah. So should we talk about Vertigo? Let's do it.
0: Vertigo, a feeling of dizziness, a swimming in the head. Figuratively, a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense.
1: I don't want to die. There's someone inside me and she says I must die.
0: A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. It's a cinch. I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present. Between life and death. Between the golden girl in the dark tower. And the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image.
2: So Vertigo came out in 1958, and it's obviously Alfred Hitchcock directed. Uh, There was multiple writers on it. I don't have their names in front of me, but I know Hitchcock wasn't happy with some of the early drafts, so it was kind of like a lot of rewrites. Eventually, they landed on what would be the final writers. And I think one of the previous writers put up a little bit of a stink and was like, I wrote it too and got his name on it, but the third guy just didn't even get, I don't know if he like, didn't try or like, one of the people that worked on it didn't get a, a writing credit. From what i read online, I want to preface this all as like, this is knowledge I've gotten from the internet, I might be wrong. Wikipedia is always right, I don't
1: know what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I I can, yeah very factual sources. And, like, surprisingly, this movie was not well-received when it first came out. It bombed at the box office. Now it's considered one of Hitchcock's best. That only happened when it was re-released 20 years after it came out.
1: Well, I think it was nominated, like, or not nominated, but AFI listed as its, like, number one best film ever.
2: Oh, really? I know it does. I know it, I've read a couple things that it's, like, every year there's a list that comes out. And it's always in the top 10. It was number one on it once. I don't know if this is the AFI list or another list. But usually it's kind of, um usually it's beat by Citizen Kane. But maybe other film, maybe it's. It good.
1: was definitely the AFI. It was number one on it at some point. Either for a year or whatever. Let me look it up quick.
2: So according to Wikipedia.
1: Just <laughs> AFI... you give yourself a click sound effect. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I think they do lists every year, which is cool. I don't know. We'll have to look into it more. But it's definitely on. It makes a lot of lists. In 1958, it did not make any lists. People just didn't dig it in 1958. I read that it's because Jimmy Stewart was known for more, like, likable roles.
1: (laughs) So... It was confusing to see him in this movie, especially towards the end. Because, yeah, I guess he is trying to play it kind of dark, but because it's Jimmy Stewart, I couldn't under... Like, it was just difficult to process.
2: Yeah. So the movie opens, and the credits are
1: basically just all these, like, lady parts. Saul Bass does the credits. He's, like, one of the best motion graphics designers of all time. Fun fact, his wife, like, helped with the design on a lot of them. But, oh, really? yeah, I love the credits for these. They're so fun. And Urey is a lot of lady parts. Very cool aesthetic,
2: aesthetically. A lot of lady parts being broken up. You've got some lips, you got some eyes. But it is really pretty. It is a really cool. They all
1: kind of look like vaginas. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so the movie opens, and there's a rooftop chase. We see the main character, Scotty who's chasing after a criminal. He slips and he falls off the building and he's clinging to it for his life. And another cop tries to save him and falls over the edge. Yeah, this gives Scotty some PTSD and he kickstarts his fear of heights, which is called acrophobia, which is not a fear of acrobats. I <laughs> was surprised to learn. Who would have thunk it? Every time I heard it, I don't know why I thought that when they kept being like acrophobia.
1: And I'm like, what? That's not a real thing. The way he talks about it in in his Jimmy Stewart voice. You're like, oh well, she might be my acrophobia. I can't do Jimmy Stewart right now. <laughs> I learn a Jimmy Stewart accent so bad and I can't do it. So you gotta do but it Whenever people can pull out a good Jimmy Stewart, it's one of my favorite things. It's hard.
2: But you do a good one. All right, so you're gonna have to come in with the Jimmy Stewart during the
1: I should have practiced it before this. I messed up.
2: No. Nah. So the acrophobia gives him vertigo, which is where the movie gets its title and is basically the glue of the film. So after this whole thing happens, we fast forward to the present day and we are in the studio of his ex-fiance, Midge, who's pretty
1: much the coolest character in this movie, I think. I love Midge. She's very, she plays like the same part as Grace Kelly in Rear Window. Like, that whole first scene between the two of them feels, like, exactly mirror
2: window. (laughs) It's so interesting because it's, like, you know, she's the opposite of, like, the femme fatale. She's, like, you know, the approachable, like, likable, independent. She's the cool girl. She's totally the cool girl.
1: What I think is interesting about her is that, like, she's supposed to be very, like, smart and independent. But because it's, like, the 1950s, her, like, smart, independent, almost engineering job they can give her is, like, designing a bra that can hold up boobs with no straps and no back. Like, what else could a smart woman be working on? And she
2: didn't even invent that bra. That bra was invented by, like, an aerospace engineer who's, like, a guy. And she's just kind of, like, working on it now or, like, has it. But, like,
1: they even couldn't even give her that. Like, she doesn't even get the credit. You can just hear the studio execs, like, we wanted her to be smart, but not too smart. (laughs) And also, so they make, like, this off-the-cuff
2: response that, like, they dated in college, or they were, he was her fiancé for three weeks, and yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry, Jimmy Stewart is 50 years old in this movie, and the actress who plays Midge is in, like, her mid-30s, so, like, I don't know if, like, okay, so she's in college, and she's dating this, like, 30-something man, or he's in college, and she's, like, a small child who's being in, like, daycare in school, I don't know.
1: That's so interesting. I thought they were supposed to be playing the same age, Which- and they just, like, did a weird thing with casting, because Hollywood, and, like, are like, oh, well, we'll give her glasses and a sweater, and... She's not cute anymore, so people think she's old. <laughs> no,
2: I I feel like that's what they were doing for sure. Like, but I hate that so much because it's like they're trying to get Jimmy Stewart to play younger and her to play older, so they can like meet in the middle. So maybe they're both supposed to be like forty or whatever. But like, I just fucking hate that because Jimmy Stewart clearly looks like an older man in this movie, and she clearly looks like a younger girl. So it's kind of like, eh. As someone in their mid-thirties, that's not my favorite trope in movies. <laughs> anyway, so Midge is showing off the new strapless, backless bra that, like, literally—I don't understand the science behind how this thing works. It looks like a claw machine. It just like clings
1: to the back of your like body. It looks incredibly painful. And then they just like ruched some like pink silk over it, and we're like, "Well, now it's cute." <laughs>
2: like imagine putting something over that like what would you wear like that's in theory for like a backless dress but it's so like bulky like how would you wear a dress over that but uh, it's not important for the plot of the movie anyway <laughs> we learned that another one of scotty's college pals gavin who's in his mid-50s <laughs> wants to up, and i'm not sure like Yeah, so I'm not sure of the whole relationship there, but basically Gavin heard about Scotty's trauma, wants to use his detective skills because his wife's being a little bit sketchy and he wants to find out what she's doing during
1: the day. Uh, I always find this so funny because, I guess spoilers, but... Like, the plot's so intricate, and I just wonder if he was, like, like he sees that newspaper article of, like, detective retires with vertigo, and he's like, I've got it. <laughs> I know what to do. <laughs>
2: right? Yeah, this plan is so elaborate. Like, if any one thing that went wrong would have threw this whole plan off. Like, <laughs> so Scotty eventually agrees that he's going to follow his wife Madeline around. See where she goes during the day. He's not worried she's cheating. He thinks she's been possessed, is the story he gives him. (laughs) So he follows her around. He sees her in front of a painting at a museum. He sees her at a woman's grave. He eventually finds out that the woman in the painting's name is Carlotta Valdez, and that's also the name on the grave that this woman is in front of.
1: She She ends up having a viral hairstyle. Oh, yeah. Adeline has a spiral hairstyle. There were spirals in the intro and the credits. <laughs> it's all about the spirals. <laughs> it's all coming together.
2: She ends up in a room at a hotel, the McKittrick Hotel. And that scene was cool. I really liked that scene. I like the little, like, creepiness of,
1: like, wait, no one came in here. So, like, yeah. she but, like, she's clearly in there. I yeah. have a question about this. Because there is a hotel in New York called the McKittrick Hotel. That does, like, Sleep No More and other, like, kind of famous dark shows and activities. I wonder if it's named that after Vertigo. I think it is named...
2: I think they named the Mick Hittrick in New York after the movie. Like, that's my guess. I have no basis of that. I didn't look it up or anything. But it seems like a huge coincidence if they didn't do that on purpose.
1: If anyone knows, let us know. Because we're curious.
2: <laughs> reach out we don't have google so we don't we're
1: not able to find out on our own let's pretend it's 1958 so send us a letter the mail don't get know. out your dial phone and your landline and give us a ring <laughs> call the operator say i'd like to reach happily ever <laughs> well see here i'll, I'll say i'll say
2: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i tried i can't do it <laughs> so also like I mean, we said up top there's going to be spoilers. And so ultimately, she knows he's tailing her. But, like, he is doing a terrible job tailing her. Like, (laughs) like, at one point, like, she walks by him and he just stands really still. And I'm
1: like, you're not invisible. She also, like, is very good at, like, she knows where he is and being like, This is the angle you need to see to see my hair is the same as the painting. (laughs) Let me pose for you to notice this necklace.
2: (laughs) Oh, the necklace. She's so dumb. She should have known to throw away the
1: necklace. Sell the necklace. (sighs) Anyway,
2: eventually, Scotty goes back to Midge, asks Midge if she knows a guy that knows anybody that knows things. And she's like, yes, yes, I do know a guy that knows things. (laughs) How convenient. (laughs) Yeah could you be more specific (laughs) no okay let's go to
1: this bookstore
2: so they go to a bookstore and this guy coincidentally knows exactly who he's who he's talking about and apparently carlotta was a woman who had an affair with a wealthy man who bought her a house which is now the mckittrick and they had a child and he eventually the man takes the child leaves the woman and he notes Men could do that in those days. And I love that he acts like the 1950s were like past that. Like they're like, ah.
1: back in those, the 1890s, they could do things like that. Things are better now. What else could you ladies want? <laughs> Bras the <with> straps. <laughs> you got the vote. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty finds out from Gavin that
2: Carlotta is coincidentally Madeline's great-great-grandmother. So, he still follows her. This is like now we're like 45 minutes into the movie. Follows her, catches her jumping into the Golden Gate, jumping into the water by the Golden Gate Bridge. He saves her, takes her back to his apartment, undresses her.
1: Wait, hold, I also like when she jumps in the water... We see the staircase and like the distance from the ledge she jumps off of and the water and it's like not super high like it's probably like no more than like a two meter diving board where you would have like I don't know and she passes out immediately when she hits the water and I'm just very
2: confused. And it's, I mean, I feel like they were in a pickle because they couldn't make it higher because of the fear of heights. He wouldn't be able to jump in after her if it was higher. So they needed it to be like a short ledge. Oh, but yeah, she, he buys it. He's like, yes, this woman is drowning. Yeah. <laughs> takes, her, takes her home, undresses her, which is so fucked up.
1: It was drowning. so, and she's so chill about it when she wakes up and she's just like, I don't know what I am and I'm naked let's oh, just see what, what happens. The <laughs> most fucked up part
2: is, is she wasn't asleep. Like, she yeah. did that on purpose. <laughs> so she was awake and she just, like, let this guy undress her as part of, like, this, like,
1: I don't, like, she had to keep a straight face while this man is just taking off her clothes. Like, I never even thought about that. I thought they made her, like, actually pass out when she hit oh. the water, but that makes it so much weird. <laughs> She went method. She's like, all right, I gotta knock myself unconscious and hope for the best.
2: (laughs) Hope I don't die. Hope this guy saves me. So she wakes up, and this is like now, like, yeah, like 45, 50 minutes into the movie, and we finally hear her, like, speak. And she's like, what am I doing here? Of course, she already knows, and she also let him undress her, and they they share like a moment. There's lots of sexual tension. It was a little sad. I don't know. It was a little sad because he's like, he's could have Midge, and he's like clearly like I don't know. I just wanted him and Midge to end up together. I really liked Midge. She's too good for him. Yeah, she is. Anyway, so Madeline runs out, leaves, and uh, Midge actually sees her leave. So she's a little bit jealous and sad. And I I feel like uh, I feel like Scotty's leading her on a lot of the time. Like why does he hang out in her studio so much? Like he's always just showing up there.
1: Well, who's gonna put a step stool up to spot him and <laughs> his vertigo exercises? She like makes some drinks and he just sits there while she like works.
2: <laughs> so the next day, Madeline like comes back to his apartment and they spend the day together. They go, they check out some redwood trees. Scotty mansplains Sequoia trees to her. <laughs> he gets really in detail about the trees, and I'm just like they're trees, she knows, she can read. <laughs> yeah. So they eventually end up by the ocean, the waves are swelling, they kiss. And I don't know about you, but anytime I watch an old movie, why did they like
1: smash their faces together? <laughs> I think about this too. Like, was that like a like a Hollywood policy code thing of like this is what appropriate? what's appropriate for colleagues like now they would say you're not supposed to like do tongue or is that like how people kiss like until like like, what what point do people realize like oh like this isn't like comfortable (laughs) and if you so like if that was just the movie way of
2: kissing because I do think I know like up until like more recently it was like you didn't really kiss in movies with the tongue now I see tons of movies where you kiss with tongue but in the 50s maybe it was kind of like you just mash your faces next onto each other and like, so if you're a kid growing up and you watch all these movies, when you go for your first kiss and you're
1: like, <laughs> that's me mashing my face into someone else's face. Kids oh. in the 50s are just walking around with teeth knocked out and bruised lips, <laughs> fat lips, come on. It was the original um, Kylie Jenner challenge. Oh my god so
2: scotty like goes back to midge's studio and midge is having a good old laugh she like got into painting and she shows scotty this painting she's been working on it's like an elaborate painting of Carlotta from the from the gallery but it's midge's face
1: But like that's so much time to spend on a joke (laughs) oh my god i literally wrote that down like that is so much work for a joke She's clearly the one character with the job. <laughs> like, when when <laughs> did she find time to do this? It's like the same... I feel like they just took the painting
2: from the wall of that museum and used the same painting with the new face painted on it. Like, they didn't paint two paintings for this movie. It's very elaborate, and he doesn't think it's funny.
1: <laughs> no, not even a little. He, like,
2: runs out. He's like, can't deal with that. We don't see Midge that many more times in this
1: movie. <laughs> Yeah, she kind of fades off after that. Yeah. Like, so Scotty...
0: <laughs> she Scotty- does have
1: her moment when he leaves where she's like, stupid, stupid yeah! She's stupid Yeah, stupid, like, tearing her hair out. And it's like, oh, my God, this is so sad.
2: I felt so bad for her because I feel like she's, like, the original, like, friend. Like, she's, like, the basis for, like, all, like, friend characters in rom-coms now. Like... Judy Greer probably
1: watched a turn. I was like,
2: Justice for Midge. (laughs) I love the friend characters. I always want to see rom coms from the friend characters. Like, give them a movie. Yeah. A full movie where they get to do something. So, Scotty realizes that this elaborate dream Madeline says she's having takes place at San Juan Bautista, which is like a nearby Spanish mission. He takes her there. They confess their love. She runs off into a church. He follows her, but she's running upstairs and his vertigo prevents him from going fast. Even though he's not going that slow, like he's almost, like he's like really like right behind her. Like I feel like he like almost at her. But he sees her jumping off the top of this tower. Um, And then instead of going to the body, he thinks it's a good idea to just flee the scene. (laughs) This is like a part that confused me. Because there's some kind of court trial that's not in a
1: courtroom. I don't know who's on trial. Like, is he on trial? I don't know. What Was it a trial? Or was it, like, a filing of, like, a police report and, like, kind of a gathering evidence and testimony type yeah. thing? It could have
2: been. I don't know a lot about the legal system. I've never... I don't know. And also, it was the 50s. I don't know. I can't... Like, it looks like it was, like... Was it in the mission? Like, it, it looks like it. It was in a nice, like, breezy room. <laughs> like...
1: It's I about the, the same level of realistic politics as the, the IRS and Heartbreakers. Yeah. No one asks any questions.
2: Everyone gets off. If it was a trial, no one's, like, in trouble. Gavin leaves forever. Scotty has a mental break, which sucks. But I really thought that was, like, really, like, pretty. Like, his mental break was really, like,
0: yeah. cool.
2: It's like, pop art mental break.
1: Like dude. Very well shot. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I appreciated that. Um, he ends up in a hospital where, okay, we see Midge for the last time here. She's taking care of him in the hospital. So if anything to tell us she's 100% too good for him, it was the fact that she is, like, doting on him in this hospital and he does not give a fuck. <sighs> he starts seeing Madeline everywhere and all these Like, the, after he's released from the hospital, he just sees Madeline everywhere. And then he sees a brunette woman walking down the street and he's like, shit, that looks just like Madeline. Follows her into a hotel, goes up to her room, tells her she reminds him of someone, asks her out, and she says yes, but when she leaves, she goes to get her suitcase, and we see the gray suit from Madeline's wardrobe right in her closet, and we realize it's
1: actually Madeline. She's like a babe with brown hair. Her, her baby hair game, they've gelled each baby hair down in a curl on her forehead individually, and like, it kind of works. she looks really good
2: in both looks I will say they did the difference of her being blonde and brunette is different enough that it's believable that it maybe could have been mistaken for two different people also her eyebrows look a little bit
1: thinner as like I feel like they filled them in a little less as Judy they give her more like dramatic eye makeup too she's pretty like clean faced as Madeline the blonde washes her out a lot though
2: yeah, but she's obviously gorgeous as both people. And we find out it's the same person. And now we go, we get her perspective. So we see her writing Scotty a letter, confessing to like everything that went down. Turns out Gavin killed his wife, hired her as a lookalike, then hired Scotty so that they could legitimize the whole thing. And he would witness the suicide, which, like we mentioned, is a lot of,
0: <laughs> a lot of string.
1: Yeah, very convenient that his one ex-police officer friend happened to have vertigo and also is, like, newly retired. It's, like, such a faulty, and I've read, like, articles. Like, this plan is terrible. It
2: reminds me of how bad the plan was, and it follows. Like, the pool plan. (laughs) And I actually read an article that was, like, Hitchcock wanted, so after writing the movie... Hitchcock wanted to change it at the end and make it so that the reveal wouldn't happen right there and that it would, like, happen later. And Jimmy Stewart agreed with him, which I think is, like, interesting because, like, the way that he wanted to change it would have gave, like, Scotty a little bit more control because, like, you wouldn't have known Scotty was being duped during this whole, like, back end of the movie. But apparently, like, the Paramount boss, Barney (laughs) Blabbin. definitely butchering that name, made them leave it alone. And he, I, the quote was like, put the picture back the way it was. <laughs> it's like the quote he said. I gave it that tone. I don't know what tone he used. No, that's but it, definitely
1: the tone I had. That's interesting though, because it does give Scotty more control, but it also makes him a lot more sympathetic to have the reveal in the middle, because otherwise he just seems kind of like I mean, he's very controlling and possessive either way, but in one time it seems like he's doing it to an innocent woman and the other way it feels more like pushing her to tell the truth. Yeah. So it also makes him look better, you're right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And if they didn't do it the way it was, we wouldn't really have any sympathy for Madeline's character. I mean, you do start to feel a little bad for her as like these scenes can go these scenes go on because so now he's dating Judy we know is Madeline. And he tries to turn her into Madeline. By getting her to wear her clothes like her. Or dye her hair like her. And the line that bothered me the most was when he's like. Asking her to dye her hair.
1: And he's like it can't matter to you. And it's like it's her hair. Yeah I kind of. I forgot about this whole section. Where like. I forgot about like the second half of the movie. Where He dates her as her but then tries to make her just like become someone else to fill this empty hole for him.
0: Yeah
2: it's like haunting and the fact that we the audience knows it's actually the woman makes it even more haunting for us and that's like really disturbing to watch. So she makes a mistake by getting dressed for dinner into Carlotta's necklace and he remembers it and realizes what's going on and, like, I feel like this is an amateur hour mistake. Like, this necklace played a key role in the plot.
1: It is, but also, like, I don't know about you, but I feel like no one I've ever dated has ever recognized, like, any yeah. of the jewelry I've worn. So I feel like fair on her, her to be like, ah, he won't know, like, what are the odds that he noticed. That's a
2: good point. I mean, it's a gamble. That's well, yeah. a good point, but this is just like in Heartbreakers with the Mercedes. It's like, yes, it's a nice car, but sell it, like, get the money, buy another car. You don't want your address attached to this car. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a con woman, but I feel like I would do a better job than
1: these people. what yeah, you do, yeah.
2: <laughs> so he takes her back to the mission, and he tells her to go up to the top to recreate that night. Now she's obviously terrified. She obviously remembers that night. And this time he halfway up, he tells her he knows who she is, and now she's obviously very terrified. the most
1: confusing scene because he seems like he's gonna kill her, But then he's like, still he's Jimmy stewarding it out. So I was like, oh. Yeah, I guess that's, like,
2: another thing is, like, I don't know. Like, in my mind, he wasn't going to kill her. I don't know what he was going to do, but I couldn't picture him killing her. But, again, another read of that is, yeah, he was going to kill her. Like, I feel like what's cool about this movie is there's a million ways to read it. And back in these days of movies, I will say back in these days they they let you have opinions nowadays movies come out and the director immediately comes out with a statement on the intention of a movie yeah and I actually really dislike that because I like I was an English literature major and we did a lot of like close reading and I liked the idea that like I could read something one way and someone else could read it a different way so it bothers me when directors are like this is the definitive way to read this
1: scene I was gonna say egos be big, but Hitchcock <laughs> had a huge ego. So I know I don't it's fascinating like The ultimate to find anything.
2: I mean, if Hitchcock had a Twitter account, I'm sure we'd know his opinion.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> I would love to see you have a fake Hitchcock Twitter account. <laughs> oh my god, that would be amazing. Hitchcock reviews movies.
2: <laughs> <laughs> So they make it to the top of the tower and they're, you know, she's swearing she loves him. Like, I mean, we kind of know she really loves him because in that moment where he's not around, she writes that letter and she says she loves him. And there's no reason for her to lie in a letter he doesn't see. So, like, she really does love him. And, like, does he believe her? We can't really tell. All of a sudden a nun gets up out of the shadows. (laughs) That is not terrifying. Terrifying. I was fucking... This is the scariest part of this movie, for sure. And Madeline Judy is also terrified. It stumbles backwards and falls out the window to her death. Then we just see Jimmy Stewart looking over the body again, and that's the end of the movie. Oh. <sighs> oh. oh. Yeah. She was scared scary like I, yeah the way her shadow is too like when she like gets up and you just see her shadow also there's the whole like religious element like is does judy stumble because she's surprised by the nun or does she think like god is like looking at her like she sinned and then there's this nun and then she's like oh my soul and falls backwards i don't know i feel like
1: there's like a religious kind of like lean you're definitely on something because i feel like in this time it's like definitely setting up jimmy stewart to be the victim which he is but he's also batshit crazy in the second part and and so i feel like it's trying to set it up like she gets so she gets punished and she gets her come and he can kind of keep his hands clean and it has this like bigger moral picture of like she was just so guilty and
2: So I think the ending is interesting and I think it ties to heartbreakers quite like nicely in that there is this ambiguity at the end where when in heartbreakers you have Paige confessing that she lied to Jack and you like see them in the bar but you don't know is he going to forgive her and they're going to live happily ever after or is he going to be like you're a fucking liar are you insane and like kick her out of the bar. And you don't know if Jimmy Stewart was going to forgive Judy and say, like, okay, let's give it a go, I believe you, or if he was going to push her off the balcony himself.
1: Yeah, there there are definitely, like, multiple different ways to read it, too. Or even if, like, he wasn't, like, even if they weren't going to, like, run into the sunset together, there's the option that he was going to be like, oh, I've, like, overcome the experience. I was able to overcome my trauma. And then he can just move on and be with Midge. I feel like Midge de- is deserves better,
2: but she would have been with them, so. So, yeah, Midge is an interesting character, too, because, like, what is her purpose in this movie? Like, why is she there? Like, I love her so much, but she doesn't get to do anything. She's literally just there to, like, give Scotty a place to, like, moan and groan.
1: Maybe it's to set him up as desirable. Hmm. They're like, we got this 50-year-old man,
2: how can we make... <laughs> um, that's not true. Lots of 50-year-old men are very attractive. i um, yeah, just thought sure we stare. <laughs> I know, like, I mean, also there's a difference between 2020-50 and 1958-50. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> very true. Yeah, one thing I definitely thought was interesting about these movies, aside from the con, was this motif of women becoming someone else or, like, this fantasy version of themselves for someone they love. Um, because, obviously, Judy or Madel Judy becomes Madeline for Jimmy. But I also feel like Paige kind of becomes Jane for Jack. Like, when we first meet her, she's such, like, a well-developed character. And then we're supposed to think, like, she's becoming her better self by, by like, turning more Jane-like. But it, she's just, turning into who he thinks she who she thinks he wants
2: I actually had like a a sadder reading to that because the way I looked at that relationship between Paige and Jane is that I mean Paige was basically created by her mom like she was like kind of like fabricated by her mom from a young age so she doesn't really know who she is like she was kind of thinks she knows who she is but then she meets Jack who's like likes her for some reason that she doesn't really understand and kind of like or do
1: we (laughs) because they never bond right like I think she just realizes that I think maybe it's like a she
2: realizes she doesn't know who she is kind of thing and that's why like I'm not sure they end up together but I think she at least has this like oh shit I gotta find out who I am kind of
1: thing but maybe I'm giving the movie and her way too much credit Because I like that reading a lot but I think even from that perspective, she isn't very much becoming, like, what her mom thinks is the fantasy ideal. And then coming out of it. Definitely. It's interesting, the, like, ideals between the two time periods. What they, what we thought was kind of, like, quirky and, and sexy.
2: Yeah. So, what's interesting to me, so, like, Hitchcock, obviously, historically... It's very much about, the, like, the male gaze. Like, that's, like, all his films really play with that. And I'm curious, like, is there... This, so, Heartbreakers comes later. It still has a male director, so I'm not sure about this. But is there, like, a, fem- a
1: more of a female gaze than Heartbreakers? Oh, I don't like, think so. I think every time we see Jennifer Love Hewitt, it's, like, legs to head sectioned into body parts. Like, yeah. So like, I think that too,
2: but I think it wants to have one, like, I feel like it doesn't, but I think it wants to, because I feel like it uses the sexuality as such a, it plays it up, but it's in a very humorous way. A lot of the times, like, it's very much like when her boobs are pushed up and they focus on it. She's walking around like a cartoon character and it's very over the top and her dress is so short that it's not even like something you would ever wear in public. And I just think it's almost so outrageous that it's just played up to make kind of men look pretty ridiculous for being like susceptible to it because it's so exaggerated. Um, I don't think it succeeds at doing it, but I
1: think it kind of wants to be doing it, if that makes sense. I could totally see that. Try. Okay. I'm trying to think if it like over sexes any of the guys at all. Jason Lee might be a virgin. He's not sex at all. But I feel like they do have that like statue that's just like so phallic and explicit. That's the same kind of visual, like over the topness.
2: Well, that's a good point to you bring up because the statue actually, like, this Sigourney Weaver has a line when the penis breaks off the statue and she's like, what, it, what good is he to me now? Like, without his penis, like, what good is this man to me? Like, and I think that kind of plays on, like, masculinity and kind of that, like, trope of, like, you know, like... And I, I feel like the movie wants to be smarter than it is, but, like, I do think it wants to play with that idea of, like, these women are in control, even though they're overly sexualized and all that. I think it wants to be saying something that it doesn't quite succeed at, but that it's trying
1: I, I think you're onto something, though, with just, like, the idea of control, because that was something I thought about as well, and that in both movies, like, we talked about, they're structured very similarly, so we should feel like, in some ways, Madeline or Judy is the one who has more control as the, the con artist, and so are um, Paige and, and Angie, but, or Paige and Max. But Madeline really has no control. She's kind of being played by both parties, by Gavin and by Scotty. Um, I guess Paige is similar to her in that way. Like, yeah. like uh, Max would be the Gavin, and, and she's kind of like stuck between these worlds. But, but even like Paige, who's supposed to be kind of being played by her mom, has so much more like control and agency and impact on the plot than Madeline does. There's not like a single thing that the Madeline character does that's not something a man told her to do that she did on her own whereas Paige like goes off to start her own con on her own and decides that she's going to go back and apologize and, and, and can take charge of her decisions even if she's kind of being played
2: yeah that's a really good point I had like a similar thought in the kind of duality of like Judy versus Paige Gavin versus Max like Judy's in control, thinks she is, but not really, because it's Gavin pulling all the strings. It's interesting because when she's Judy, Scotty tries to assert his like will onto her, and only the audience knows that it's not that it is actually Madeline. And so, like, we can see her losing her control as she like lets it happen that he like she's letting him change her wardrobe, dye her hair. So, like, because we know it's actually Madeline. We can see the control being, like, kind of, like, taken away from this character. That if we didn't know it was her, it would just be a tragic, a tragic story, like, he's trying to change this poor, innocent woman. But because we know it's actually Madeline, we see, like, her losing her power a little bit. Like, he's, like, breaking her down.
1: And I guess it, it goes with, like, motive, too, because as, like, Judy gets made over it's simply because, like, she loves him so much and wants to please him. And when Paige kind of lets her mom make her over, you know, it's not at all to please her. It's very, like, ambitious and wanting to prove herself so she can go out on her own. And there's, like, a bigger picture to it that she sees. Yeah. Um, whereas Madeline's just like, I have to, this man has to love me. That, that's the only thing that can be the only thing, my only goal. Yeah. And
2: you're in- it's also interesting that, yeah, Paige is after the money, whereas Mad or Judy signs up to be Madeline, not for money, but because she's with Gavin or like loves Gavin at the start of it. And then Gavin leaves her. And yeah. now- so it is all about a man, whereas Paige is in it. Almost, I guess she's kind of raised to think men are shit they're gonna leave you because that's how max raises her like men are just out to you know con you so you have to like have the power and that's where i think it does play with it a little bit because it's all about wanting to give women the power but they don't really have it but they it
1: wants to give it to them just like right there <laughs> yeah it, it does feel like one of those like very like placating feminist feminist i'm saying it in air quotes films of like the 90s and 2000s where it's like we're gonna have these strong female characters and they're gonna be funny and kind of like pull one over on the guys but at the end of the day when you look at like the bigger picture plot they're women relying on men for money
2: and the male characters are like also, like, they're the victims. So, like, you got Scotty and you got Dean, Ray Liotta, And, like, they're kind of the victims, but, like, they're never fully the victims because, like, both have, like, huge character flaws so that you never feel too bad for them because Scotty clearly manipulates Judy and he doesn't know it's really Madeline. So he's just being a manipulative, insensitive character, whereas Dean is... He's a gentleman in certain respects, but he did
1: cheat on Max. Like he did like he did cheat on her. I think one thing about the male characters being victims too is that we can see like the stakes aren't nearly as high for the men as they are for the women. Like Scotty is getting kind of played by Madeline, but we still understand that he, like, somehow has a living on his own and he's comfortable. He's got midge he has got friendships. Like, Madeline doesn't really seem to have, or Judy doesn't have to see- seem to have any sort of, like, support structure or life if she can't figure out how to make these work. But we know that, like, he'd be sad, but Scotty'd be fine. And same thing with Dean. Like, we see him getting played by Angie, but, like, he still has his business. Like, he's still totally fine. He wants his money back. He doesn't need it he's not in the same situation they are that they like have to do these cons or like how are they gonna eat (laughs) well they could get jobs (laughs) they could put glass in their plates yeah they
2: could get jobs too i i read like a fun fact that the only thing in the entire movie of heartbreakers that we see anyone any of the two women sigourney weaver and jennifer love hewitt pay for is when sigourney weaver slips money to the guy at the at the restaurant to not say that she's not Russian and that's like the only time they're not conning their way into stuff
1: that's so true another thing I thought was kind of interesting was just like the reasons why people fell in love like we're su- the two characters that are supposed to be like head over their heels gone is Scotty for Madeline and then Jack for Paige and the reasons why are just like they're erratic moody women who seem to be unstable and they find that to but beautiful and they find that to be deep (laughs) or mistake that for being deep or interesting
2: it's so true I feel like that's like a very popular trope and I hate it's another trope right up there with like blue balls and all the other ones that I don't like is like It doesn't, it's not good for women and it's also not good for men because it doesn't give anyone any credit. Like, if you're going to say that a man is just going to be that, like, dumb that he's going to fall for a woman just because she's pretty and her personality could just be, like, very all over the place. Like, I, I would like to think that a man would see through that.
1: I don't know. I feel like it's not even, though, about, like men being dumb and falling for it because I think to a certain extent for Madeline's more of an act but Paige is very like kind of genuine in her um all over the placeness Uh, I think it's just like this romanticization of damaged women as like more valuable or more interesting do you think that it's similar to like
2: a, a bad boy complex? Like, do you think it's like they men think they're gonna like fix these women, just like women think they can like fix the bad boy type trope?
1: I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't think it's like it's definitely not unique to these no. movies. To your point before, it happens all the time, and it is it is frustrating. But I do
2: think you're right that in these two, like like I'd mentioned earlier, I feel like we didn't. You know, the point of picking these two movies together was very much they're both con women who, you know, have these very gray area interactions with these men and, like, the impact of that. But, like, I didn't even realize how similar the plots really were until, like, I watched them within, like, days of each other. And that especially. They fall for, like, these women after, like, no
1: no interaction. Paige and jack have that scene where like she goes out to to follow him and he's stargazing and they kind of have a moment and they like start making out and you see them lying on the blanket it's supposed to be like this is like when they bonded for real like the moment he broke through to her and like really fell for her and of course, she gets a call from her mom and has to run away. And he calls after her, like, "Wait, what's your name?" He like, was supposed to be like our nice guy who's in it because he likes her. And he he hasn't gotten her name yet. He didn't ask that one. Yeah, they were hanging out on the beach for
2: like a while. Also, the telescope when they're looking through the telescope, and then it's like oh, look at this, and it's, like, literally, like, a stock photo of space, <laughs> and you see, like, the Getty logo on, like, the photo, like, they didn't even buy it, just, like, also, I was watching this movie, like, probably, you know, like, a week or so ago, and they're looking through the telescope, and she's like, oh, what's that, and uh, Jack's like, oh, that's the Corona Borealis, and I was like, oh, my god, too soon, Jack, too soon that that was really the name of a constellation but i was like i just happened to be watching it now and i was just like oh my god
1: and then the next one's a cluster of stars and it's like why aren't they six light years apart <laughs> i love that and i love that you
2: did it in like a jerry seinfeld delivery
0: <laughs> what's
1: the deal <laughs> what is the deal with these star clusters <laughs> I also think one thing I also noticed in this was just the idea in both of them of like women taking advantage of men just promotes the mindset that like a women are tricksters but also the way that like the women in the film are always in competition with each other instead of like ever with like a man for a job just sets up the idea like they're only like So many pieces of the pie to go around and they have to fight against each other for them instead of trying to find something else. So like Kim's like kind of, sorry, not Kim, Kim's (laughs) but Judy is is set up originally against Gavin's wife and then against Midge. Paige and Angie are kind of set against like every woman they've ever met, also against each other. But I do think, I guess the one thing Heartbreakers does differently is that Paige does want to kind of break out and do her own thing. But it's still a conning thing. It's still just fighting, like, other women for different pieces of the pie.
2: And it's kind of like, I don't know. So, like, when they say they're going to go off on their own and Max is basically calling her daughter's bluff because she's like, she's not going to go off for, like, without money. And she's like, well, we have $1,300 each and that's it. Good luck. <laughs> And I feel like, you know, okay, if you really want to go off on your own, you take that $1,300 and you go make a life. Like, you can go try at least. You can always come back. But, like, at least give it a go. Go get a job. Give it a give it a good try. And it's just, like, clear that, like, no, like, Jennifer Love Hewitt is very materialistic, needs to have the nice things. Even though, even, like, when Jack gives her the, the ring that has, like, this, the rock in it. And it's not like a the rank, she's very mean about it. And I'm like, I guess she was raised that way. But it's like, oh, like you got her a nice gesture.
1: But like, even like the first thing we hear her complain about is like having to spend four months in the motel instead of at the hotel. Right.
2: I do feel bad for Paige because I do feel like she was raised into it. But it's these women are very much all about appearances and the material goods and all that and like you were saying the competition with other women but it's all based in the superficial i feel like jack should have just ended up with sarah silverman was it just me
1: but i thought there were some points where they tried to play sarah silverman like she was a queer character and interested in Paige.
2: ah uh, yeah i had that thought for a few like a couple scenes too but then there were scenes where I don't know I also got the feeling that she kind of I got that sometimes and then sometimes I didn't and I thought maybe she
1: was in a jack. I'm glad you brought her up though because on the point of like women being against women I think that's the only the only two characters I can think of who aren't against each other because Sarah Silverman kind of is like always very encouraging and supportive of their relationship. Which we, we don't know why, because Tage is a psycho, but she's the one who's like, yeah, he's worth, like, three million. And like, <laughs> Yeah, she's, like, very
2: naive. I feel like they don't do much with her, and they could have done a lot more. Yeah. It,
1: it would say something, though, if, like, if she was a queer character, and that is the only female-to-female relationship, in either of the movies, that's not competitive. Then it's almost that way because she's queer, and they wouldn't be competing for the same resources. Yeah, but of course it was two thousand and one, so we'll never find out because they obviously just didn't
2: like they didn't play with it at all.
1: It's interesting also seeing which characters kind of get a comeuppance and which ones don't. Yeah, because I feel like it's kind of in Vertigo. <laughs> It's obviously Judy, not Gavin. I think Gavin just, like, gets away with it and disappears. Judy is someone that's punished, which goes along with, like, the Valentine of, like, what happened to the bullies that were in on this plot?
2: Yeah, and that's true. So, like, Gavin doesn't ever get in trouble, and I read that that was the only time in a Hitchcock movie that the person who, like, the person got away with something, like, got away with the crime or whatever. And I think it almost got changed, but it, like, ended up this way. I think there is an alternative ending somewhere that you can watch where I think the scene goes that, like, you see Midge, you see, like, through a third party, like, Midge hear something on, like, the radio or something that Gavin got arrested or something. Like, so they kind of, like, allude to it, but in the ending that they went with, he gets off. Which, and
1: Judy dies. So yeah, the woman
2: gets punished and the man gets off.
1: And then I feel like in Heartbreakers, it's interesting because like, I mean, Max and Dean are meant to be together. They live happily ever after. I feel like the only character who ever, he's not even really punished, but the only one that doesn't kind of have a happy ending is Tensley. Jake is dead. Yeah, dies in the most embarrassing fashion ever like pants down dick in his mouth and then they just like desecrate his body for like five You
2: yeah and they never say like what happened. like you're right how did they get away with this like that body has been been through so much like there's no way they would have got away with
1: that and you know he's like a multi-millionaire like someone's checking that body out to make sure like nothing happened that's so true I wonder what they're, like, trying to say in Heartbreakers, with that, if they're trying to say anything, that that's the one character that doesn't end well. Don't smoke. Kate <laughs> smokes. I feel like she gives up smoking, though. And well, that's I sort could... of, like, a good girl thing. Yeah. I guess the Anne Bancroft character kind of has a comeuppance, too, in the end. She's the only other one.
2: Yeah, we can assume that the con works and that Ray Liotta gets her to marry him and they get all their money back. I mean, you would assume, but I would feel like Anne Bancroft's been through this game enough times that she would make
1: like a prenup happen or something. Like, I feel like, but for the sake of the you movie, you would think Max wouldn't give her bank account numbers away after all the people she's gone. You would
2: think. Stupid con artists. We could have done this better. We could. And they should. No, i just <laughs> So, each episode, we're taking away one life lesson we can learn
1: from watching these movies. So, what did we learn today? Don't lie about who you are. Oh, um, crime doesn't pay. I mean, doesn't it, though? <laughs> it does for some of these characters. <laughs> if she has more than five wigs and she's not an international spy, get out. Or, like, an international pop star. I feel like that would be okay, too. (laughs) That's true, like Hannah Montana. Yeah.
2: (laughs) If she's not Hannah Montana, if she is Hannah Montana, also get out, because she's probably
1: 16. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tricking someone to fall in love with you and then gaslighting the crap out of them is never a good idea. Or isn't a very nice idea, (laughs) because it does work out again at least. It's all fun and games until you fall for your mark. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. That's it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So, which movie do we think teaches that lesson
1: better? Vertigo. Definitely.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to agree with you because I mean, it's the
1: lesson is more serious. (laughs) Like you will die. (laughs) Yeah. They're not gonna be happy when they find out and it's not gonna be a Dean Max situation. They might push you off of a tower. Yeah. yeah, I'd have to agree. Unless you're dating Chad from SNL. Okay. <laughs> I love Chad from SNL. It's it's one of my favorite like characters in series of skits. It's so good. Which movie do you think teaches less and better?
2: Yeah, I would definitely say Vertigo because I feel like in Heartbreakers, like at the end, we don't know if he forgives her, but there's a chance it's going to work out for them. We're in Vertigo. She's definitely dead and there's no chance. So I think the lesson is much more dire in that situation. So, yeah. Um, which movie did you enjoy watching more?
1: I think this is the first time in the four episode history of our podcast I'm going to choose the rom-com. I just fucking love Heartbreakers. I love it.
2: <laughs> I had a feeling when you said you fell asleep during Vertigo that you were going to say that.
1: <laughs> thing is, like, I still like Vertigo. I just, like, it's one of those things where, like, intellectually and, like, as a filmmaker, there are so many things I like about Vertigo. I know it's a better movie, but as a person... I laughed the whole way through Heartbreakers. Like, it's just a romp. I love it. It's a good time.
2: (laughs) I think I, so I loved, when I first saw Heartbreakers years ago, it was like one of my favorite rom-coms. I loved it. I loved Jennifer Love Hewitt. I wanted to be her. I will say after watching it a second time, I still really liked it, but it felt, I felt the two hours this time around. And I think the only part that I really appreciated as much as I did the first time is Gene Hackman. I thought Gene Hackman was hilarious. And anytime he was on the screen, I laughed. Honestly, he was a genius in this movie. It was so <laughs> funny. But I will say that out of the two movies, I think I think I might have enjoyed Vertigo more <laughs> this time around. Um, I don't know. I think it's also just like where I'm at Currently, like, we're obviously self-isolating. We're home. It was definitely, like, a very, like, it's a very, like, chill vibe of a movie. And it really, like, kind of, like, like you were saying, it's a relaxing film to watch.
1: Am not moving?
2: <laughs> it really calmed me. And I really found it very enjoyable. I would say this time around, I enjoyed it more. But I
1: still love Heartbreakers, too. Is this the first time we've chosen different movies? It actually might be. Yeah. Can we I, still be friends? Are we allowed to keep going? No, so this was our last episode of this podcast. <laughs> we figured out what breaks us as people. Thanks for the ride.
2: <laughs> oh, It's been a whirlwind. No. <laughs> we can still be friends. <laughs> and it's Tara's birthday this weekend. Happy birthday, Tara.
1: <laughs> it will have passed already by the time. This it's is this weekend as of like right now.
2: So she'll be Older by the time it airs.
1: <laughs> feel a little wiser. I might have boobies. We'll see. <laughs> Sixteen candles, our
2: friends. Listen to our last episode. <laughs> it makes sense if you listen to the previous episode. <laughs> so on that note, <laughs> next time I'm Amanda and I'm Tara. And remember, all is fair in love and gore.
0: Oh, okay.